Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The New York Giants began the decade of the 90s advancing a style of football as old as the game itself. Fundamentals that remain true to the very essence of the sport. 25, 20, he might score, he will! While others tried frills and finesse, the Giants won with well-crafted strategies and no-nonsense power on both sides of the line of scrimmage. And the punt's coming down to Megan. He takes it at his own 32. Runs right, gets across at 35 to the 40, 45, 50. He's at the 45. He might go. Blows everything. Way down for Baker, baby. Touchdown! Handoff. Muscle stop. What a play. John Washington. Yeah, Washington sneaking through, stopping him at the line of scrimmage. With courage and resilience, New York survived in crucial games the experts were certain the Giants could not win. Fans are on their feet and screaming. Set, spot, kickers away, it's got the distance, it is good, good, And the Giants are going to Tampa Bay, it's over for the three-peats, it's over. Silver Anniversary Super Bowl, the Giants prove that champions are not always the fastest or flashiest, but those who stand true to the basics of the game, strength, endurance, and character. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, old sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, and I'm joined as always by my brother and co host, Andrew Newman. This week, it is all about football once again, and specifically Super Bowl 25 between the New York Giants and the Buffalo Bill. As hard as it, as hard as it may be to believe, that Super Bowl was 30 years ago this month, and so we thought this would be a good opportunity to commemorate one of the best Super Bowls in NFL history, Super Bowl 25. Andrew, how are you tonight? I'm good. You always introduce me as your, your brother and co-host. Would you consider me more your brother or more your co-host? Well, you've only been my co-host for about three months, and you've been my brother for many, many years, so I'd, I'd stick with brother still at this point. All right, well, we'll see. If we start making money from this podcast, then maybe that'll change. Yeah, we'll just be co-hosts of a show who secretly hate each other. <laughs> like every successful radio duo in history. 
much. Yeah. I was going to like, how do I, which example do I use? Mike and the Mad Dog, Opie and Anthony, pretty much. And it's pretty much just everybody eventually grows to hate each other. I bet you that Evan Roberts hates Carton already. Uh, well, I hate Craig Carton already, so I would imagine Evan Roberts does. But You know, to be honest with you, I don't know. If, I mean, they're not on the tier of Opie and Anthony or Mike and the Mad Dog, but I never got the impression that Evan and Joe hated each other. No, I, I don't think so at all. They were bros. They were, even though they were 30 years apart. All right, so why don't we get started here? So this is probably the first episode we've done when we've talked about a specific game. We've In the past, we've done eras. We've done seasons single years, that type of thing. But this is the first time that we've talked about one specific game. What is it, Andrew, about Super Bowl 25 that you think makes it worthy of having an entire episode devoted just to that one game? So I'll go with overall and then I'll go with sort of personally, which I feel like will be some overlap with you. So I think it's a, it's a couple of things sort of overall. One is that it was just a great game at a time when the Super Bowl was not often a great game. True, there'd been one two years before that, the 49ers Bengals game where Joe Montana had the drive at the end of the game. I, I'm mixing the story up in my head, but I believe he threw the game-winning touchdown pass to John Candy. No. He, <laughs> no, he saw John Candy in the stands. He threw the touchdown pass to John Taylor. Oh, that's not as fun. Um, but, you know, th- during that era, there was a ton of blowouts. Usually the NFC team was administering a beating to the AFC team. The year before, it was 55-10. to 10. A couple of years later, you had the Cowboys all over the- beating the Bills 52-17. to 17, And those were not out of the ordinary at that time. So it was such a great game, um, which I'll, I'll circle back to in a second. It was, you know, Buffalo's first Super Bowl ever which Buffalo sort of became a running joke within a couple of years, but they had never made a Super Bowl. It was a very different team. You had the game played in the, in the, under the shadow of the Persian Gulf War, which had just started about a week and a half ago in terms of U.S. troop physical involvement uh, in Kuwait. You know, you had the, the sort of, clashing styles between the two teams. So I think that's, and then from a Giants fan standpoint, there's so many high, like I grew up watching tapes of this game and and specifically sort of the 1990 Giants video yearbook that you and I used to rent from the store all the time. And now you can find on YouTube. And, you know, I knew all the highlights to this game but I didn't know exactly where they plugged in. So watching this game for the first time end to end eight, nine years ago, when it finally you know was released on DVD, it was cool to see everything get, get plugged in. And then I think for me too, the reason this game is so good with the ending, you used to hear a lot of people talk about the Patriots, the first ones, especially when they beat the Rams and when they beat the, the Panthers and, and things like that. To me, the difference between this game and the games, the Patriots ones and the Rams-Titans and a couple other ones was this came down to a field goal on the last play where it turned out to be the second to last play, but where one team was going to win and the other team was going to lose. Most of those other ones, the Venetary field goals, if they missed, the game was going to overtime. The Titans had gotten that extra yard against the Rams and then made the extra point. It was going to overtime. This game, when Scott Norwood lined up, 
if he made the field goal, the Bills won the Super Bowl. If he missed it, the Giants won the Super Bowl. And in fact, the comparison that's made, and you and I both watched this game in preparation to talk about it this week, the right before Scott Norwood lines up to kick the field goal, they show a clip of Jim O'Brien in Super Bowl V, which at that point had only been 20 years previous, and he kicked the game-winning field goal against Dallas to make it a 16-13 Colts victory. But you're right, that was the same type of thing where even if Jim O'Brien misses that field goal, it's not over for the Colts, and it's not over for Dallas. Dallas doesn't win, Baltimore doesn't lose. It's just going over to overtime so that the finality of the kick for both teams is is really something that's kind of unprecedented because one team is going to win and one team is going to lose after that kick for Norwood. Yeah, and, you know, you have sort of the the various characters as you look back on it. You had two head coaches who were in the Hall of Fame. You have... On the Bills side, Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas. On the Giants, Lawrence Taylor. I guess before we get into the game, we should talk about just briefly the story. Uh, I'll tell the Giants side, and then we can circle back to the Bills of getting there. The Giants won the Super Bowl in 1986 as a a dominant team, and then spent a couple of years in the hunt, but not, you know, never getting to as far as a conference championship game. In 1990, they started 10-0, they lost uh, three of their next four, including a game to Buffalo. When they lost to Buffalo on that Saturday afternoon in December at Giants Stadium, Phil Sims was injured, missed the remainder of the season. The Giants had to turn to Jeff Hostetler, who'd been a third stringer and then a backup for the Giants for several years at that point. They beat the Bears in the second round of the playoffs in a, in a blowout that people were surprised by because when, part, when Hostetler took over, played in two games, the last two games of the regular season. The Giants beat the two worst teams in the NFL, Arizona and New England, by a field goal apiece. They got a bye. They beat up on Chicago. I believe it was 34-3 or 31-3. Something like that was the final score. And then they had to go out to San Francisco and play the two-time defending champions who'd beaten them earlier in the year. And they ultimately win the game 15 to 13 without scoring a touchdown on a last second field goal by Matt Barr. That was sort of the end of the Joe Montana prime of his career. Leonard Marshall knocked him out of the game where had they won, he would not have played in the Super Bowl. You know, really a people I talked to prior to 2007 used to say that was the most impressive win in the history of the Giants franchise. So they won that game and they were on their way to Buffalo or on their way to Tampa to play Buffalo as pretty significant underdogs against a Bills team that really was a machine in 1990 and rolled through the playoffs. So the Giants were six and a half point underdogs in that game to the Bills. In a lot of ways, this game kind of represents the beginning of one era and the end of another era. Really, with the exception of the strike year in 1987, the Giants were very good throughout the 80s. They made the playoffs in 84. They lost to San Francisco. They made the playoffs in 85. They actually beat San Francisco in the first round and then lost to the Bears. So two years in a row, they lose to the eventual champions. 86, they win it all. 87 for them is kind of it's kind of a lost year 
because of the strike. But then in 88, I believe, don't they miss the playoffs on the very last day of the season in 1988? So what happened in 88 was they won on, I want to say it was a Saturday or it might have been a Sunday. And then the next day, they needed the 49ers to beat the Rams to get into the play. Or Actually, the 88, the Giants lost their last game of the season to the Jets when they could have clinched a playoff spot. And since they lost, they needed help the next night with the Bears playing the Rams, not the Bears, the 49ers playing the Rams, and the 49ers didn't play any of their guys, and the speculation has always been that they didn't want the Giants. Um, it was, I think it was Phil Sims appeared on the halftime of that show, that, that game. He was, you know, whatever channel was carrying it, he was on the halftime show and basically said the 49ers are laying down like dogs. So they missed the playoffs in 88 at 10 and 6. And then in 89, they were really, really good. They got the number two seed. They got a bye. And they ended up having to play the uh, Los Angeles Rams in at Giants Stadium. And they lost in overtime in kind of a shocker to uh, a lot of Giants fans. That's the Flipper Anderson game. He scored a touchdown in overtime to end the game and kept running right up the tunnel uh, into the locker room. So that was how the Giants entered the 1990 season, which was a contender perennial contender but hadn't won a playoff game since 19 since Super Bowl 21 at that point so starting in 1985 10 and 6 14 and 2 and then a bad year in the strike year in 87 but then 10 and 6 12 and 4 and then in 1990 they were 13 and 3 Giants have not won 13 games since that they've only won 12 games once and keep in mind that that includes i'm sorry they've won 12 games twice in 2000 and then again in 2008 keep in mind that that's two super bowl years in 2007 and 2011 so that was sort of the last year of the dominant it was the last year of the dominant parcells giants and then by the same token it's the beginning of the buffalo four super bowl losses in a row thing and i remember by 1992 and even into 1993 that 1990 season felt so long ago for the Giants that it was hard to believe that they were the beginning, the first act of that four-play tragedy for Buffalo. It, it, it just, by 92, 93 for the Giants, 1990 felt like it might as well have been 1970. And here's the crazy thing. I was planning on doing this at the end, but... You think of that game as a lot, in a lot of ways as the end of an era for the Giants. You know, the next year they went eight and eight, and the year after that they went six and 10 before they had sort of a brief one year resurgence in 93. But here's the thing the only guy of significance from the 1990 team that was not on the team in 1991 was Mark Bavaro. If you look at, at all the guys who, who contributed in 90 to a significant degree, Really, every starter. The only one who was gone the next year was Bavaro, and he was not going to play in 91, or the Giants didn't believe he was able to play in 91, so they cut him. But as you look at it as an end of an era, the reason for that is there's a, a few lasts in that game. Um, it's Bill Parcells' last game as the coach of the Giants. He retires in May of 91. You know, obviously was planning on coaching in 91 and had a change of heart in in uh in may or so and had some health problems 
Bill Belichick, the defensive coordinator, had basically, by the time of this game that we're going to talk about, had basically already agreed to become the new head coach of the Browns. Some other coaches left, most notably, in retrospect, most notably Tom Coughlin, who was the receivers coach and went on to take the Boston College job and then in short order was back in the NFL as the Jaguars head coach. And then the other thing that was a last, and I don't think this had anything to do with the end of an era in terms of the play on the field going down, but this was the last game ever where the Giants were completely owned by the Mara family. Because after the 90 season, the uh, Tim Mara half of the family, Wellington Mara's nephew, sold his 50% interest in the team to the Tisch family, and that's been the ownership structure ever since. So, yes, they were getting old, but they had a a contending core that had just won a Super Bowl and did not lose much, and still it was the end of an era just because of the coaching and, and things like that. That 90 Giants coaching staff is often cited as one of the great NFL coaching staffs in history. You had Parcells, obviously, at the head. Belichick, Tom Coughlin was the receivers coach. Romeo Cornell at defensive line. Al Groh, linebackers. All three of those would go on to be head coaches in the NFL. Ray Hanley, who would take over the job from Parcells in 91 with the Giants. And then Charlie Weiss, who did Weiss ever actually coach did he ever get a head coaching job in the NFL or was it just Notre Dame? I think it was just Notre Dame. Just Notre Dame. So still a really incredible coaching staff. And they go in against this Buffalo team, which had sort of been gradually getting better as the 90s went on. They had hired Marv Levy in – what year did they hire Levy? They hired Marv Levy in – 1986 halfway through the season and he went two and five in his first year. He had previously been with the coach with the chiefs, a really interesting guy, Marv Levy, an intellectual. He had graduated from college and then gone to Harvard law and he didn't last very long at Harvard law. He was only there for about, I think a couple of weeks, but he transferred then and he got a graduate degree in English literature from Harvard. So not a lot of football coaches with graduate degrees in English literature from Harvard, but Marv Levy, a very cerebral guy, a player's coach. And then at the same time, they're bringing in all of these future hall of famers, Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas, Andre Reed. They signed James Lofton, who had been a wide receiver with the Packers and had previously, and would eventually go to the hall of fame himself. And then you got Bruce Smith, a future hall of famer on the defensive side of the ball, as well as guys like Shane Conlon, Cornelius Bennett. But the strength of the Bills was really this offense. They made it to the playoffs for the first time in 88. They actually lost the conference championship game to Cincinnati. Cincinnati, And then they lost in the first round in 89. But by 1990, everything really sort of comes together. And, they run this offense, which they call the K-Gun. And what it basically is, is basically just a no-huddle offense that lasts for the entire game. Yeah, it was basically, I think they technically phrased it a hurry-up offense because they would have a like a real quick huddle right before they got to the line. Um, I don't know how much it would stand out today. 
you know, watching it was it's it certainly stood out. Watching this game, you know, I watched it out this past Saturday just while in preparation for the show and took a bunch of notes. But this was an era when, you know, and it's contrasted a lot with the Giants in this game because the Giants are purposely trying to slow it down. But even in the normal course of a game, back then you huddled unless it was the last two minutes or three minutes of a game. You know, you'd be very sort of methodical and the Bills just got up to the line as quickly as possible. And the other interesting thing about this was when they were running the K-Gun, Jim Kelly called the plays. Yeah. By this era was not a a thing that happened coaches called the plays so certainly a different thing for the era but yeah that was sort of the development and this was really the heyday of it was this 90 team the 90 team is probably the best team of any of them definitely their best opportunity to win they went 13 and 3 they had some you know losses they went 8-0 at home that year they lost to the dolphins on the road houston and then washington in the last game of the season but you know, in the in between, they beat the Giants like we talked about. They beat the Raiders in the AFC Championship game, like fifty-one to three, or I believe was the final score. Fifty-one to three. They beat up on the Dolphins pretty good in the in the divisional playoffs. You know, they had been really on a roll. Uh, they had scored ninety-five points in their first two playoff games. Yeah, so so they came in sort of flying very high as the favorites, and I looked it up the. Going into the game, the Buffalo had 10 Pro Bowlers. The Giants had seven. Ten guys named to the Pro Bowl. I'm going to see if I can pull that right back up here. Um, 1990 Pro Bowl rosters. Sorry, I thought I had this loaded up here, but I'll do it. So, you know, this sort of overarching theme is the Bills, the Giants were good, but they had a backup quarterback. The Bills were you know, firing on all cylinders. Giants just barely escaped San Francisco. So the pro bowlers for the Bills in, in 1990 were uh, Will Wolford, the left tackle, Jim Kelly, Shane Conlin, the left inside linebacker, Steve Tasker for his special teams play, Cornelius Bennett, the left outside linebacker, Andre Reed, the receiver, Daryl Talley, the right outside linebacker. So there's three linebackers in the pro bowl, Thurman Thomas, Bruce Smith, and then Kent Hull, the center and then for the giants the pro bowlers william roberts the left guard eric howard the nose tackle bart oates the center lawrence taylor right outside linebacker renee thompson special teams sean lanzetta and pepper johnson you've got a lot of giants on there who were sort of one or two time pro bowlers and you got a lot of bills who are hall of famers if not multiple year pro bowlers so i wrote down are you, should we just start going sort of in chronological order as the game starts, or did you have any other sort of general observations? Well, let's just talk about a few a few of the storylines. Uh, first of all, the Giants go in with Hostetler. Hostetler had originally been he'd been with the Giants for several years. I think his first year was eighty five. He was he was on the team in eighty six when they won it all, but he was not dressed for the Super Bowl. He'd played in some games earlier in the year. He was so desperate to get on the field that he actually played a little bit of wide receiver, which shows you what the Giants receiving core was like in the mid-80s, and also played special teams. In fact, in the 86 season, he blocks a punt against the Philadelphia Eagles, which is just crazy to see. Here's Jeff Hostetler, who 
watching it in retrospect, you know him as a quarterback and a guy who won a Super Bowl as a quarterback, and here he is blocking a punt. He had wanted for years to get traded, and Parcells kept refusing to trade him. And he'd been their third stringer for most of that time behind Jeff Rutledge. And then, well, when did Rutledge leave? Before the 89 season? I I think it was before the 89 season, yeah. Because I know uh, Posteller started some games in 89 when Sims was injured. I wanted to circle back. You said he was not dressed for the Super Bowl for in Super Bowl 21. He wasn't. He, was he fined for that? He was not on the active roster for the Super Bowl. He was not in uniform. <laughs> um, but and yeah. Then, Go ahead. Sorry. And so, and he claims this, and who knows in retrospect whether this was actually the case or not, but he claims in that he had decided to retire at the end of the 1990 season, that he was so frustrated with football and with never getting a chance that he had decided that 1990 would be his last year. It's probably easy to say that now, and maybe he even thought it at the moment. Who knows if he, if the 90 season had gone on and Sims had played and, you know, let's say even if they won the Super Bowl or they got knocked out, I don't know if Hostetler actually would have retired, but at least now he claims that he had decided that 1990 was going to be his last season. And then I think the other guy worth mentioning for the Giants is Otis Anderson, who had been previously was known as OJ Anderson. And he had a almost a borderline Hall of Fame career with the St. Louis Cardinals in the 70s and 80s. Traded to the Giants in 86 as a sort of a backup running back. Scores a touchdown very late in Super Bowl 21, sort of almost as a, a present from Bill Parcells. You've had a great career. Here, go score a touchdown. Horse, you know. I'm sorry? He had a few pelts on his horse. You know? <laughs> That's another line from Parcells in the, uh, the 1990s. You're cut a lot of that into this, right? I am going to cut a decent amount of that into this, yes. Parcells... They kind of they keep OJ around, keep Anderson around, and then, as, as fate would have it, <laughs> Joe the Morris breaks. Joe Morris breaks his foot, and, and so in the '89 season. In the '89 season, yeah. I didn't realize Morris was on the the team in camp in '90. I was just about to mention that Gosh. Joe Morris, who had been, he was a a good running back, a small guy. I think he was under six feet, Morris, and he was well under six feet actually, and. He was he was definitely under six feet. He was like five nine or five eight or something like that. And he was a, he was the running back. He made a couple of minutes the Pro Bowl a couple of times with the Giants. And he was backed up by Anderson. And then they also in 1990 they drafted Rodney Hampton. They had Lewis Tillman. And I think right up until the end, it was expected that Morris was going to make the roster and that Anderson was going to get cut. But they keep. Anderson they cut Joe Morris and then as the year goes on Anderson starts to play sort of a gradually more important role in the giant offense and it's sort of back and forth between him and Rodney Hampton sometime in the middle of the season Rodney Hampton takes over the starting job but then he breaks his leg in the first playoff game against Chicago and so then Otis Anderson is back to being the number one guy just going into that Super Bowl, and I think Anderson was what age was he at this point? Was he 34? I want to say OJ, yeah, he was 33 that season, yeah, 33, which for a running back is is old. It's you know, it is kind of funny to think about them talking about 
acquiring him in 86 basically as like an old man, you know, to sort of in the, they talk about him scoring that touchdown, like you said, as sort of a topper for his career. He was 29, but such is life for an NFL running back. Exactly. The only other things that we should mention, and obviously we have one big thing that we need to mention before we get into the game itself, but as young and hungry as the Bills were, the Giants were sort of just as old. You had the, the offensive line was all new with the exception of Bart Oates, the center from 86. But the defense was a lot of guys. Taylor was getting old. Leonard Marshall had been there. Carl Banks had been there. Their big offseason acquisition was a cornerback named Everson Walls, who had been a star cornerback with Dallas for over 10 years. In fact, when Dwight Clark made his famous catch in the 81 NFC title game, it was Everson Walls who he caught it over. So this was not a young team by any means. And then even on the offense, in addition to Anderson, you had Sims who was getting up there. You had Mark Bavaro who was in his last year as a giant and was still a solid NFL tight end, but was very beat up. His knees were really going bad. So the giants kind of, I don't want to say they limped into the playoffs or limped into the Super Bowl, but they were definitely not a powerhouse in the league, even the way they had been in 86. They were for most of the year. But then they, they lost their quarterback and they lost three games, two of which were against other contenders. You know, if you look at their last six, after they started 10-0, and their last six games, they lost to a pretty good Eagle team, a really good 49er team, and a really good Bills team. And their victories were against a middle-of-the-road Minnesota team and then two terrible teams. In that stretch, they also lost their starting quarterback. In the set first playoff game, they lost what at the time was their starting running back. And that 49ers-NFC Championship game was a brutal game in terms of the physicality. And that was just the week before. There was no off week that year. The Giants flew right from San Francisco to Tampa Bay for the Super Bowl week. So, you know, they they were certainly run they were they were not seen as the team that had gone 10 and 0 the first two and a half months of the season. And Hosteller had gotten beat up in that NFC Championship game. In fact, just before Montana got knocked out by Leonard Marshall, Hostetler had been temporarily knocked out, ironically, by Jim Burt, who had been a giant up until a couple of years ago and was a star defensive lineman for the Giants uh, in their first Super Bowl. So there's a reason why the Bills are six-and-a-half-point favorites going into this game. They're the only... This is the only of the four Super Bowls that the Bills went into as the favorite. The other two things I would quick want to mention, and I'm sure we'll get into this later. The big question for the Giants on defense is how they're going to stop Thurman Thomas. And so Belichick comes up with this game plan, which is basically to sort of let Thurman Thomas get his 100 yards and then concentrate on beating the Bills the other way. And then on offense for the Giants, their big goal is just is to stop Bruce Smith, the all-pro and future Hall of Famer. And he's going to be blocked by Jumbo Elliott, at the offensive tackle. And Parcells recognizes just how important this matchup is, so much so that he gets Lawrence Taylor to pick a fight with Jumbo Elliott earlier in the week in 
practice just to sort of get Jumbo Elliott riled up. And then the only other thing I want to mention is during that Super Bowl week, the Bills were reported as being a lot looser than most teams are when they come into the Super Bowl. Marv Levy didn't have a curfew, and they were sort of famously seen to be out, not, you know, fall down drunk at three in the morning, but they were seen to be enjoying the experience and going out and having fun a lot more than teams previously had in the Super Bowl. Yeah, but here's the one thing with that. When the team wins, that gets seen as the right move. Oh, absolutely. Scott Norwood kicks the ball three feet or, you know, whatever, more to the left. And, you know, could you hear about that with the 07 Giants where it's like, oh, they went out to Arizona and they were loose and they were, you know, comfortable. They weren't freaking out against about the Patriots. They were, you know, they had the whole thing where they were at like an in and out burger party. I can't put too much into the, you know, the thing of if they were non-competitive in the game, the whole they were loose thing may not have been, you know, may have a little more credence to me. Oh, no, I agree. I just, I think it's an interesting contrast and it's not just something that's been brought up in retrospect. It was something that was discussed even before the game. And just to to sort of underline, and I have a couple of thoughts about just like the DVD, the broadcast comes on the air and there's a couple of things before the game, but the the full sort of Belichick game plan was they're going to put two, they're only going to use two down linemen most of the game. They're going to let Thomas run. And the big thing, the big goal, and you can see this throughout the game, specifically with Andre Reed, and that it works and that it takes its toll, which is as soon as they touch the ball across the middle, we're going to gang tackle them, we're going to hit them. And you can see this with Andre Reed, and I'll make note of it at different points as we go through this game here. He gets increasingly more and more skittish as the game goes on. He drops a few balls that he would not drop. He cuts off his route a couple of times, and that was a big part of the game plan was we'll let him catch it underneath and drill him right away. And that's what they do. So the other thing that we have to talk about going into this game is the Gulf War. Um, Iraq had invaded Kuwait in the summer of 1990. And, and obviously, I'm, I'm simplifying this extremely, but the U.S. had sort of engaged and sent troops to the Middle East around that time. But the actual ground war with actual boots on the ground in Kuwait didn't start until I believe it was like right before the NFC championship game. It was definitely in that time period between when they played the bears and then when they played the Niners, because if you watch the broadcast of that 49er game, which was on CBS, they're going to Dan rather like almost every 10 minutes with updates. The Super Bowl was on January 27th. Mm-hmm. I have in my notes that the forces entered the Persian Gulf, U.S. forces entered the Persian Gulf on the 16th, which would have been like the Wednesday before the NFC Championship game. So right around then. So a couple things to keep in mind. This is pre-internet. It's pre-most cable news. CNN is around, but it's not the 24-7 news cycle that we have today. The United States really hadn't committed troops to a war 
in this, to this extent, since Vietnam, and if you know anything about the Vietnam War, that was a very gradual thing. There wasn't this sort of specific moment. So to have this happen really sort of crystallized the nation. You know, and I remember I was eight years old. I remember when this when this happened, and it was just a just this wave of whether you want to call it patriotism or war enthusiasm or just whatever it was. So it was really palpable in the country and that really carries over into the Super Bowl. First of all, with security. Now it, it does kind of make me laugh to hear about all the increased security in the wake of the beginning of the Gulf War, all of the increased security at the Super Bowl in Tampa, because my guess is that the level of security that they had then is the same level of security I would go through if I went to a Wizards Raptors game now on a Tuesday night in January. It was I would, ima- I would imagine you'd be tackled to the ground. <laughs> post pre or post pandemic, let's put it that way. Um, but but at the time this was a really big deal and there was talk that maybe they shouldn't even play the game and I hadn't realized this. I just saw this when I was researching this. Apparently on the flight from San Francisco to Tampa President Bush called Bill Parcells to see if he still wanted to have the game, which I thought was really strange and seems very unofficial, but I, I read it. So I assume it's true. I read it in a reputable source. So, well, and I think this is one of those where it would be very difficult for, especially somebody, you know, who's maybe 25 or younger to really understand, like knowing in hindsight, what the Gulf War was and not to minimize any war, but from an American standpoint, they kind of how long before they had pushed the Iraqis out of Kuwait at three weeks, something like that to hear these broadcasts. Like it was the day after Pearl Harbor, especially in the context of we've now been in two wars for 20 years, meaning present day, it seems so overwrought. But like you said, at the time, it was the first real significant conflict we'd been in since the Vietnam War. The Cold War had just ended within a year or so. So people were in the mindset that there was never going to be another war. And here we are all of a sudden fighting one. The broadcast comes on and, you know, right at the top, Frank Gifford mentions the troops and it's sort of fitting. It's two teams that were red, white, and blue. And the before the game, the big thing that everybody always remembers is the national anthem with Whitney Houston sort of regarded as one of the best renditions ever of the national anthem obviously against the patriotic backdrop is one of the reasons it's amplified but these DVDs which usually cut a lot of that stuff out made sure that they started the the DVD portion of the broadcast to include Whitney Houston's national anthem did yours have it? Mine has it. I have the 10 greatest giant games of all time, and it's got it. I must have accidentally skipped ahead or something because I have the same thing and I didn't see it because I was just about to comment how it wasn't on the DVD and maybe there was some sort of a rights issue or something. But to the national anthem? Uh, who knows? <laughs> Hopefully I just missed it. But yeah, no. It just got keys pissed. They got their <laughs> bomb out. <laughs> but so she sings the national anthem. A couple of points that are not as serious as that. The Super Bowl 25 logo is awesome. It's like a silver and red and blue shield. Shield with the X's and the V. And I mean, they have a blessing there that the logo is relatively simple with the three Roman numerals. I miss that. 
sometime around 2010, they stopped with the individual Super Bowl logos and kind of standardized them for each year now. Um, not all of them were great, but the Super Bowl 25 logo is, is a classic logo. They also mentioned at the top of the broadcast that through the first 24 Super Bowls, the AFC and the NFC are tied at 12, which is kind of remarkable when you consider at that point how many in a row would the NFC won at that point? 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 80. They'd won six in a row to tie it back up at that point. And that's something I don't think people maybe if you weren't a football fan back then can realize because the Super Bowl now, especially when you factor in the Patriots, it's almost always a pretty decent game or at least not a blowout. And it's almost never a question of who's going to win. I remember as a teenager and even before that, the fact that the NFC was going to beat the AFC, that was just a given, whether it was 49ers Chargers or Dallas Buffalo or Dallas Pittsburgh or you know, San Francisco and Denver or whoever in Denver. San Francisco and San Diego. Yeah. So, and this is like right smack dab in the middle of that. The, the 83 season was the last time that the AFC had won a championship and won a Super Bowl and they wouldn't win one until the 97 season. So like, we're like right in the middle in 1990, that 14 year period. The other thing I would note is that the game is on ABC. This is, I think only the it's like the third Super Bowl that's been on ABC. It had always previously alternated between NBC, who had the AFC, and CBS, who had the NFC. And ABC only always just had Monday Night Football. But at some point, they got in on the rights game, and this is their third Super Bowl. And it's the classic, what I remember as the classic Monday night football team, which is Al Michaels, Frank Gifford, and Dan Deardorff. That's what I remember as a kid, too. The last comment I had before we get into the actual game, and this has been something I've thought of for a while, the 1986 Giants uniforms are different than the 1990 Giants uniforms, and I don't feel like anybody ever acknowledges that. The 86 uniforms are a much darker blue. If you watch Super Bowl Twenty One, that Feels, they're basically navy blue. And the 90 team, it's a much brighter blue. You know, I've never thought of that, but that's a really good point. Are you being sarcastic or are you... No, I'm being dead okay. serious. I've never thought of that, but that is a really good point. I have looked trying to see on the internet if anybody else agrees, like notices this, but I can't imagine the cameras were that different in a four-year period. But anyway, unless you have these images in your head, this isn't really going to do anything for you. But I've always noticed that, that they were different colored uniforms. So do you, how do you want to do this? Do you want, I mean, I took notes chronologically. I'm not saying we necessarily need to go play by play, but I, I do have sort of you know notes on each drive and things like that. Why don't we do that? Go ahead. Okay. So first, the, to start the quarter or to start the game, the Giants kick off and Barr makes the tackle. He runs down the field and makes the tackle on the kickoff. Um, it's a decent return, but he, he makes a pretty strong hit. And, you know, they, they love talking about when a kicker makes a big hit like that. So the first play I sort of have on that drive, the, the Bills go three and out. But the two plays that I sort of highlighted, I guess, two of three, what I talked about at the top, second down and 10 and third down and six, both times Andre Reed catches it. He's tackled immediately on third and six. He's tackled after five yards. The second down play, he's hit hard by 
Greg Jackson. And like I said, that was absolutely part of the game plan. And it was established early on, which was hit the receivers, specifically Andre Reed, as soon as he touches the ball. It works on this drive. The Bills punt and Dave Meggett actually gets a good return on the initial punt. And he had a few good returns in this game. Yeah, Meggett was, I think 89 was his rookie year, but 90 was the year that he really came into his own as a giant, both as a kick and a punt returner, and also as sort of the third down back for for the longest time with the Giants. If if Meggett was in, you knew it was third down, and he was a guy who could catch the ball out of the backfield. He'd even throw the occasional option pass. In fact, he threw an option pass in – the NFC championship game that should have been a touchdown, but then it was dropped by Maurice Carthon and Meggett. And they, they mentioned this on the broadcast, but they're actually giving the ball to Meggett a little bit more in gets, the Super Bowl because Hampton's hurt. Yeah. He, he gets it a lot early on in this game. Um, he actually gets the second carry of the game on second on first and five. So I guess the first official play of the game, he gets a, a four yard carry. You know, the giants start to drive, Deardorff points out that the teams are on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of clock management, which the Bills are going to go as fast as possible, and the Giants, who were methodical to begin with, but you could tell it was part of the game plan against the Bills, which was to go as slowly as possible and to take up as much of the clock. Really, the goal was to limit the Bills' possessions, to limit the number of times the Bills touch the ball. Giants have three tight ends. A lot, that- yeah. That's sort of their base offense for this whole game is the three tight ends, which is Bavaro, who's the the star tight end, who's you know been on the team and he's the he's the guy everybody loves. But then they have Howard Cross, who would actually I think this was his second year on the team, and he I'm pretty sure he was a rookie in ninety. It was either eighty or eighty nine or ninety that he was a rookie. I don't remember which year. And Cross actually stays with the team. He's on the team all the way up till two thousand under Jim Fossil when they make the Super Bowl there. And then the third is a journeyman guy by the name of Bob Roscoe. But three tight ends for the Giants is sort of the base offense for most of this game. Meanwhile, the Bills are got everybody spread out. They got three receivers. They got Thurman Thomas catching passes out of the backfield. Totally different offensive approaches. So the big play on this drive is a missed opportunity, which is that uh, the rolling hostile are out a lot. He misses a wide open Mark Bavaro at one point on, uh, it would have been, where is it? Uh, okay. Yeah. On, they're at the Buffalo 34 on first and 10 and he misses Bavaro. Bavaro would have been inside the 15, probably inside the 10, which would have set them up. Instead, he misses them. Now they do still end up getting it down inside the 15 before the drive stalls. Uh, and they end up with a 28 yard field goal with seven forty-eight left in the quarter. They go to a shot of Phil Sims on the sideline at one point, and Frank Gifford mentions that Sims's future is being questioned by many, which is hard to believe at the time, you know, that that they were already starting to speculate that, you know, Hostetler only played four games as the starting quarterback at this point, and they're saying, oh, well, they're already wondering if, if the Giants are going to stick with Hostetler and move on from Sims. The injury was not like something people were worried about being career ending or anything like that. So, and he had actually had a decent year. I think he was a, he might've been named at the pro bowl in 90 Sims. He had a good year. I think at age two, I think Hostetler was about five years younger than Sims, which I'm sure 
played a role in it. So, and Sims was not a pro bowler in 90, but he, he had a good year. The giants in 1990 had set a record with the fewest interceptions in a season in the modern NFL. I, I have to find the number. I think it was, I think it was like 14. It was less than, yeah, they had, they only had 14 turnovers in 16 games. Yeah. Less than the number of games played. I also noticed that around this point at the beginning, the, the, the announcers, Deardorf and Gifford especially, they really almost seem to be going out of their way to be praising Hostetler over Sims and talking about all the things that the Giants can do in their offense because Hostetler is so much more mobile than they would be able to do under Sims. And I just I noticed that. I thought it was a little strange. And Deardorf starts to hammer the Giants for not rolling left a little while later in the game. And he also starts to hammer Hostetler. Yeah, he's saying they're running right. They're not running left. They're running. Well, we, we can get into it later. But so the Giants, that was a six-minute drive. They get the field goal. It seems like it's a very pro-Giant crowd early. You seem to hear a lot of cheers for the Giants. The one thing I, I have a note here that, you know, and I, I've adjusted to this watching old games, but it does still. I, I understand sometimes older people like to complain about like clutter on the screen or things they see as clutter. I cannot stand not knowing how much time there is. I, there's a couple of times here, even in the Super Bowl, where they don't show the clock coming in or out of commercials. Like, let alone having it on the screen, they don't even show it coming out of commercial. It just says first quarter. And I, I can't stand not knowing how much time is on the, on the, in the left in the game. And no score a lot of the time either. No, but I mean, at least you can kind of in your head go, okay, in, in football, I know in basketball or whatever, it's harder. But... It is unequivocally better now that you always know how much time and what the score is. I, I'm sorry. That's, it is unequivocally better now that you know that. Uh, I think the theory, and maybe this didn't apply to the Super Bowl, but I think the theory once upon a time was if somebody could just flip it on and see what the score was, they wouldn't keep watching. Yeah. Not just in football, but in other sports too. But, that, but in and out of the – I don't need how much time is left in the first quarter coming in out of the Super Bowl, like coming out of commercial. But anyway. Oh. I agree. So the Bills get it. And this is really the first, the only play that goes right for the Bills for a good portion of the first quarter and a half, which is the Bills take over. And on the uh, second play from scrimmage on second and eight, Kelly throws it deep to James Lofton. The ball gets tipped up in the air by Perry Williams. He's making a good defensive play on it. He gets it in the air, but instead of knocking it backwards or out of bounds, it just gets tipped up in the air. Uh, Lofton catches it. It's a 61-yard gain total. He gets tackled inside the 10-yard line. He's brought down at the uh, 8-yard line. Just a, a really crazy play there because, you know, Williams played the ball well. Maybe he's beat a little bit, but recovers by tipping it, and it still catches Lofton, and Lofton's able to take it inside the 10. Right after that, though, the Giants, to their credit, not remembering the exact specifics of this, I was like, oh, the Bills get a touchdown on this drive, and the Giants stuff them three times in a row. They get a couple incompletions from Kelly, and Scott Norwood kicks a 23-yard field goal. It's a really quick, minute-long drive, but the game is tied uh, with 551 in the first quarter at 3-3. to So then the Giants get it back. They 
mentioned that the Giants and the Bills played each other in the first preseason game. Al Michaels mentions it, that uh, at the time, the big debate was, would they keep OJ or Joe Morris? And that's, like I said, that's kind of how I remember um, the Joe. That's how I sort of had a, I was reminded that Joe Morris was actually on the roster at the beginning of the 1990 season. The Giants ended up having to punt on this drive. They do get a couple of first downs. The big play on this drive is that on third down, Jeff Hostetler gets absolutely demolished by Kirby Jackson. He's slow to get up. It was the first time he'd really been hit. The protection was good on the first drive and until this point in this drive. And, you know, we like we mentioned with the NFC Championship game, their backup was Matt Cavanaugh, who came in during that NFC Championship game and I believe threw one ball that was like 30 yards overthrown. Safe to say they would not have been competitive in the game had Matt Cavanaugh had to play any extended time. He had come in when Hostetler got hit by Burt in the NFC Championship game, and you're right. He overthrew the ball by about 30 yards, and I remember, I still remember Pat Summerall saying, oh, there's a lot of rust on that hinge. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, Landetta, uh, Giants end up punting. Lind, uh Bills take over. They run a couple of plays, and then the first quarter runs out. And the note I had, the Bills are still in the middle of their drive when the first quarter runs out. And the note I had here was that outside of that Lofton play, the Giants really had dominated the first quarter. You know, they had a sustained drive. They three and outed the Bills once. And they held the Bills, even after that huge Lofton play, they held the Bills inside the 10 and made them kick a field goal. So obviously that Lofton play was huge. But the Giants really did, you know, handle the bills very well in the first quarter minus one kind of fluky play yeah and then this is sort of where it starts to turn a little bit yep and this is where we'll get to from this point on both teams have at least one chance where they could have gone in for the kill and they blow their opportunity but we'll we'll get to that as we go so the bills take over at the giant the so second quarter starts with the bills on the giant 41 yard line the bills seem like they're really getting into gear at one point, Thurman Thomas does limp off the field after a Carl Banks tackle, which seems like, you know, if you're a Giant fan at the time, it's like, oh, we'll take this where we can get it. But he's obviously not out for very long. So, But Kenneth Davis does come in for a little while. There's a roughing the passer penalty on Leonard Marshall, which gives the, which, you know, moves them way up the field. And the Giants ultimately end up, they stop Jamie Mueller at the one yard line. It's the first, the tackle's made by Lawrence Taylor. It's the first time you hear Lawrence Taylor's name all game. It's the first real play that he makes. When, and I would just say that the Marshall hit on Jim Kelly is a dirty hit. Yeah. And even they, by 1990 standards. And you got to keep in mind also that Marshall had knocked Montana out of the game the week before. And a lot of people thought that was a dirty hit, but this play, if I'm remembering it correctly, I think Kelly had gotten rid of the ball, like a full two or three seconds earlier. And Marshall just keeps running and just nails him. Yeah, and they say like, oh, well, there was one last week that was a good hit because the week before Leonard Marshall had hit Joe Montana. They're like, this one is really not. So yeah, no no real questions on that. They went to an instant replay at one point on this drive, which was interesting. It was sort of the the brief time that instant replay was in the NFL. And it was just basically the refs would just decide whether they needed it or not, right? Yeah, it was kind of like how college is now. I mean, in college now, they buzz from the upstairs, but they did look at a play and then Don Smith does score the touchdown, a one-yard touchdown on second and one uh, to give the Bills a 10-3 to lead with 12 and a half minutes left in the second quarter. The Giants get it and go three and out. I have my note here that 
Hostetler nearly dead. He got hit by Seals on a pass, an incomplete pass that he threw on second down. Or it might, it might have actually, or it must have been a, on third down. But Seals landed with his full weight on top of Hostetler. There's a famous picture of that. Certainly would have been a penalty today. Basically, it's like if you see like a wrestler body slam a guy and land on him. I mean, it's surprising Hostetler. If that hadn't been third down, I'm guessing we would have seen Matt Kavanaugh for at least a few plays there. But since it was third down, they were able to punt. And I think at this point, they got the smelling salts out for Hostetler, if I'm remembering correctly. They actually show on the sidelines Kavanaugh warming up. So, like I said, it was obviously close to Hostetler coming out of the game. And they also mentioned at this point that the emergency quarterbacks for the Giants are Dave Meggett and Mark Ingram, the running back and the wide receiver. I don't know if they were just mentioning that as sort of a a little factoid or if they had some reason to believe that maybe Parcells would have rather had one of those guys as opposed to Megat, or I'm sorry, as opposed to Kavanaugh, but it, it seemed like an odd thing to mention at that point. Yeah, I guess it was just because they only had two quarterbacks on the roster. I mean, it would have been hard to imagine they could have put either of them in and run a functional offense. And that, you know, 1990 Giants team really wasn't equipped to suddenly run some kind of spread, you know, option offense. Mm-hmm. The running, I mean, I know Hostetler could bootleg a little bit, but. You know, I don't think they were going to get a lot of... Let's face it, if Hostetler had come out of this game for any extended period of time, which comes close a few times here, the game was over. Mm-hmm. You know, um, So the so, teams basically trade punts here, right? The Giants and then Buffalo punts it right back. It's, I wrote here that it's really close to the Giants to it getting away from them here at 10-3. The Bills have the ball. They have all the momentum. There is a... Play on third and one where Kelly throws it for Andre Reed and Myron Guyton drills him and breaks up what would have been a first down. At you know, as soon as Reed touches the ball, Guyton drills him. And like I said, you're starting to see as this half and then later as the second half wears on, Reed is getting beaten on and it is impacting his. He's got the yips a little later in the game. He drops a few balls that you know a guy like him would not drop. Normally, so here's my note on this drive before we move on, which is it's fourth and one at the 50. The Bills should have gone for it. I mean, I know some of that is sort of modern thinking, but they're up 10-3. They have the momentum. It's fourth and one at the 50. They have a far better offense. Pro Bowl running back, a unique offense. They absolutely should have gone for it here with a chance to really go for the kill. So I circled that as sort of a mistake. Again, I know hindsight 2020 or whatever, but they absolutely should have gone for it. Um, so then the Jets, Giants take over. After the punt, they're backed up at the seven, and then there's a penalty, and all of a sudden the Giants find themselves back at their own seven-yard line, and second down and seven, Hostetler takes the snap, goes to drop back, trips himself on O.J. Anderson's leg, stumbles into the end zone, and is tackled from behind by Bruce Smith. And it's 12-3, to but, you know, and if you're at all familiar with this game, you know the the point of that play, which is 
basically a miracle that Jeff Hosteller held onto that ball for it to only be a safety. It's probably the most important play of the whole game because I don't know if what that would have made it instead of 12 to three, it would have been 17 to three. And I don't know that the giants come back from that as it is though, the bills are now getting the ball back with a chance to make it 19 three. And I think even during the broadcast, basically they're saying if this game goes to 19 and three, it's over. And no two point conversions back then. So that's a three possession game. And this is where the first time I was talking about the bills here and on their next drive had chances to end this game. And they don't. So on this drive, they get it at the 30, their own 30s, so the good field position because it was after a punt. And Kelly throws three straight incompletions, one of which is to Andre Reed, who has another big drop on what would have been a big gain. So the Bills go three and out, which saves the game for the Giants. They get the ball back, can't do anything with it. They go three and out again. Buffalo gets it at the 16, which again, it was a really, really good punt from Landetta to pin them that deep from where the Giants were on the field. Again, Buffalo has a chance to go in for the kill. And again, they move it over Giants, the Giants 50. Andre Reed gets hit on the third and seven. He catches it for five yards, tackled by Carl Banks, no first down. And again, the Bills punt on fourth and two at the Giant 44. This is probably where I would have not punted it because you figure fourth and two, 12 to three, and Jeff Hosteller, who's already had the hell smacked out of him at quarterback, and there's only four minutes left in the half. Here's where I would have gone for it if I was Buffalo, but they don't. Yep. So that's here. here's the notes I had on that, that drive that just ended, which was that they threw long on second and two, which was probably a mistake. Then they get a false start, which makes it third and seven. Uh, it was on Wolford, who was lined up against LT. So the Giants get the ball. Again, all the momentum to the Bills. It's 12-3. to 3. The Giants take over with 349 left in the first half. And that false start by Wolford is one of the most sort of unsung, important plays of the game. Because even if they don't score here, they probably get the first down. which means, And that means that the Giants probably get the ball back with a lot less time. And this was not a team that could go down the offense in two minutes and score a touchdown or even kick a field goal for that matter. If they, if they don't, if Wolford doesn't jump there, the giants probably don't score in the first half again. So the second play of this drive for the giants, and they have to hurry up a little more than they're comfortable with. But like you said, they're still not running anything that would resemble the K gun. Uh, OJ gets 20 or 18 yards. So the giants are thinking they can, you know, maybe do something before the half. Then Hostetler on the next play with 22-yard completion to Mark Ingram. He gets drilled again on that play, this time by Bruce Smith. We're getting to the point of the game where Bruce Smith is lining up in the Giants' backfield. He's getting hits on Hostetler to the point where, and we'll talk about in the second half, the Giants almost exclusively roll away from Smith for a good portion of the game. So, But the Giants continue to drive. Meggett gets them down to the Buffalo 41 at the two-minute warning. So they're at the, you know, they're, they're close to field goal range. You know, they need another 10 or 15 yards to at least get a field goal and make a 12-6 going into overtime. Going into halftime. Going into halftime, excuse me. They convert a third and seven. Hostetler hits Howard Cross to get the first down. 
and then a couple of incompletions, but on third and 10 with 30 seconds left in the half, Hostetler hits Steven Baker, who does a masterful job of getting the ball, getting his feet inbounds. He's, he's running really fast, and he kind of has to drag. He's right in the corner of the end zone, basically. Both of his feet at the same time. You know, a lot of times you'll see a guy with one foot planted, and they drag the second foot. He almost drags both of his feet because he takes a decent, like, tumble out, you know, out the side of the end zone after he makes the catch. It was a perfect throw by Hosteller. He had to throw the ball. He had to really thread the needle to do it. I did have a note here that in the modern game, there's a chance that's not a touchdown. He gets both feet in. As he goes to the ground, there's a bit of a bobble if you watch it back. Um, I don't know that that's a touchdown in the modern game with all kinds of reviews and things like that. You can look at it when you get a chance and let me know what you think, but I'm not positive that that would count today. So then after that, the one thing I wrote here too, which is it's funny to see Jeff Hosteller still holding because this was the era when usually your quarterback, your backup quarterback was the holder. Um, now it's almost exclusively punters, but this was still when it was mostly your backup quarterback. He'd been the holder all year, so when Sims went down, they weren't going to change that up. They left him as the holder, but it's weird to see the guy who's starting at quarterback in the Super Bowl also then getting down and holding an extra point. And then one last thing before the half that I did not remember, which is that Barr kicks it off, and Don Smith fumbles the ball. He drops the kickoff, and I mean... You want to talk about what really would have been a momentum shifter would have been if the Giants had recovered the ball, but he dives on it. The Bills take a knee, and we go into the half with the Bills up 12-10, to 10, but the Giants scoring that touchdown when the Bills had two chances to put the game away. They didn't do it. Both times they punted on fourth and short in good field position, and now the Giants are in the game going into halftime, and they're going to get the ball. And it's time for new kids on the block. Was that what the halftime show was? It was. That is not on the, the no. DVD. No, no, no. So a few things I just want to note here. The Hostetler, and I think they show this stat later in the half, but Hostetler is using all of the receivers that are available to him. During this game, he would throw passes to, or complete passes to seven different receivers. So that's, Bavaro and Cross, the tight ends. That's Mark Bake, Mark Ingram, and Stephen Baker, and then that's the guys out of the backfield: Otis Anderson, Dave Meggett, and Maurice Carthon, the fullback. The Giants' receiving core, their wide receivers, they basically don't have a receiving core. They have Baker, they have Ingram, and then they have a bunch of guys. They have a rookie by the name of Troy Kyles who Hostetler throws one pass to and it's incomplete. And then they have a bunch of guys who had been around for the 86 team but had kind of been relegated. Stacy Robinson was still on the team but only really played special teams. Odessa Turner was on the Giants for a while in 98. I think he might have even been off the active roster by the time of the Super Bowl. They had this rookie, Kyles. And then Lionel Manuel, who'd probably been their best receiver during the 86 season, I had forgotten this. Manuel was actually on the 1990 Giants. Early in the year, right? Parcells cut him in the tunnel 
after the Bills game, after the game that they lost up in Buffalo where Sims got knocked out, because apparently Manuel had been out partying the night before and didn't show up until right before kickoff. And so really, by the time Super Bowl 25 rolls around, the Giants really only have two wide receivers. So they're throwing the ball to tight ends. They're throwing the ball to running backs. Yeah, and that yeah, that's you. I didn't think because Ingram has a really nice game, and there's a play we're going to talk about in a little while. But yeah, you think about it, and they really did not have more than just the two of them, and then Mark Bavaro, who has a huge drive later in this game, and then running backs. It's a even four or five years later that wouldn't have fly. I uh, wouldn't fly like the '90 Giants are sort of the last vestiges of being able to get away with this kind of team. You know what I mean? Yeah, and they really weren't even that team in 86. In 86, they had a they didn't have a Giants of the Parcells era never have what you'd classify as a good wide receiving core, but there were three or four solid guys on the team in 86. By Super Bowl 25, it's basically just Ingram and Baker. Yeah. So the storyline here is the Giants have this drive to end the first half. They score a touchdown. They do kick it away to Buffalo. And, but then after they, you know, like you said, Smith fumbles, but then they get the ball back and Kelly just kneels down. So that doesn't even really count. No. Then you go into a Super Bowl halftime, which is what? 40 minutes. It's not that long. I think it's 28 minutes. I think the regular halftime is 14 minutes and the Super Bowl halftime is 28 minutes. Okay. So it's twice as long. Right? So it's about a half an hour. And then the Giants get the ball back and they go on this epic drive, which at the time was the longest drive in Super Bowl history time-wise. I don't know if it still is, but we pick up the story there. Yep. So again, the Giants down 12 to 10, but they scored that. The game looked like it was getting away from them for pretty much the whole second quarter, but they scored that touchdown right before the uh, the half, essentially the last play. The Bills took a knee, like we mentioned. So they find themselves still in the game with the ball, and they go on a drive, which still lives in Giants lore and really was the perfect drive for what they needed in this game. I would like to mention the halftime Diet Coke crack the code commercial was moved to the fourth quarter to allow for ABC News on the Persian Gulf War. So they mentioned that on the DVD that that was uh, that they they moved one of their big halftime commercials because they didn't want to overshadow the news of the Persian Gulf War. Also, I'm looking here and that record that they set with the the long drive at the beginning of the second half was surpassed by the Giants in Super Bowl 42. They had about a 10-minute drive, got a field goal, and then in six plays, the Patriots had the lead. That's right, that's right. Yeah, because that was that, I mean, 42, that was the drive that started the game, right? Then nobody scored until the fourth quarter. That's Um, right. So Giants start out, they get the ball at the 25-yard line after a, you know, a short return from Meggett. Drive starts rather inauspiciously, an incompletion, and then a false start. So they're facing second and 15, Hostetler hits Meggett for seven yards, and it looks like, you know, this drive, which lives on legendarily, you faced a third and eighth right away where it looked like they were going to have to punt it right back, and Dave Meggett catches it, and he's 
five yards short of the first down. And there's a legendary play with broken tackles later in this drive we'll talk about. But this one gets overlooked where Megan is, you know, he's cooked. It's going to be a three and out. And he breaks the tackle and runs for the first down. So the Giants had faced a second and 15 and a third and five, and they convert the first down. And then a couple of plays later on third and one from their own 47, this is the famous OJ Anderson uppercut play. He runs for 24 yards, so takes it across the bill 30, which, you know, that's the play where you're sort of like, all right, now they have a drive. Something's happening here. They're close to field goal range to at least take a slight lead. But that play is sort of lived on famously as an encapsulation of that drive, this game and that team for the giants. Yeah. There's that famous slow motion clip of him. I don't even know who is it that he's hitting. It's probably one of the defensive backs, right? Where he, and it looks so much cooler in slow motion, the way he like, lifts his arm up like he's giving an uppercut and in giving a stiff arm. The funny thing is, is that I think without this run, Anderson probably is not the MVP of this game. I don't know who they would have given it to, but his numbers are very pedestrian. 21 21 rushes for 102 yards. If it's not for this 24-yard run, I, I don't think he gets MVP. Yeah, I don't know who they would give it to. I've tried to think about who should have been the MVP if not OJ. Well, there were no turnovers, so he couldn't really go there. Nobody it, and nobody dominated the game on defense on the Giants, at least. I mean, a bunch of guys making a bunch of tackles on Andre Reed is not, you know, it's hard to make that the MVP. I think at the end of the game, Deardorff said it should be the offensive line, but you know that's never actually going to happen. People like to say that, but it's never actually going to happen. <laughs> they probably would have just given it to Hostetler by default. Yeah. Or maybe Ingram for that big play that we're going to talk about now. So they get that first down, and again, they kind of can't get out of their own way, uh, or it seems like they can't. They get to a second and five, and there's Megan has a big run, which is nullified by a hold on Bavaro. And I wrote that, I wrote, eh, it was a little chintzy. So they end up after a couple of Hostetler then has to escape pressure and gets two yards, which sets up third and 13 at the Buffalo 32, six minutes have already come off the clock, by the way, as of this point, because you'll notice most of the time it's runs or complete passes. There's only a couple of incompletions. And on third and 13, Jeff Hostetler hits Mark Ingram and Ingram is seven yards short of the first down. And he dodges about five tackles, the one famous one, the second tackle where he kind of ducks his head and the guy's arm runs over his helmet, and then he just continues running, breaks a few tackles. And the note I had here was, I'd only ever seen this in replays, like from a different angle. This play is actually more impressive on the hard camera, the live broadcast camera, because it gives you the sense of scale of just how far away he was from the first down. The sort of behind the back, I get it's more clear of the tackles he broke, but it flattens it where you can't see, like, it looks like maybe he went three more yards. The real angles, like, holy crap, he went a long way with a lot of guys in his way. Third and 13 at the 32-yard line. Settler throwing, it's caught by Ingram, he has to get to the 19th for a first down, and he does! Oh. Every-
every now and then in a football play, in a football game rather, you can look back to a play and it might set the tone for everything that happens after that. If the Giants win this game, they may look back to this catch and run by Mark Ingram. You he won't is, say any better, Dan. As a, He turns into a receiver, into a runner, and he knows exactly where the first down yardage is, and he gets it. Ingram, not a big guy, 5'10", and like 190, 195. In some ways, that short, quick body type helps him in this case because it's First of all, he's quicker, so it's easier for him to get away. And then I think, especially on a play like the one where he ducks under with the helmet that you were just talking about, there's a chance that he doesn't get to do that if he's three or four inches taller. So a couple of plays later on third and four at the 12, Hostetler finally rolls left. Dan Deardorff's been looking for it since the second quarter that they need to stop rolling left but they need to stop rolling right just to get away from Bruce Smith because it's becoming predictable. Balls keep getting batted down. They finally roll left. He hits Howard Cross for nine yards. It sets up first and goal at the three. And on second and goal from the one, O.J. Anderson scores the touchdown. There are just over six minutes left in the third quarter. So the Giants, basically, for the last, if you don't count the knee, the last time the Bills were on the field was over the Bills offense was on the field was over an hour ago and they had been Oh and I forgot to mention that Deardorff after the the Mark Ingram play Dan Deardorff said that could set the tone for the rest of the game. And he's actually right. I mean Yeah, it definitely does. So they score they had a, a 9 minute drive before the half they had like a 6 minute a 4 minute drive and then the long halftime but also just from a momentum standpoint, the last time the Bills were on the field minus the knee was on that third and seven in the second quarter when Andre Reid got tackled two yards shy. They were up 12-3 and in firm control of the game. And now by the time they get the ball back, it's late in the third quarter and they're down 17-12. to Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's almost... And I also think it's particularly tough, and maybe they said this on the broadcast even, but that offense has to be hard to pick up after sitting idle for an hour because they almost have like a basketball pace or a hockey pace that you're going at. It's got to be hard to, after an hour of standing still, to suddenly get back up there and you're not huddling, you're going fast and you're calling plays at the line and all that type of thing. A methodical offense like the Giants had you probably would have been able to get back into it easier, but a fast paced think on your feet offense, it's got to be really hard to go from zero to 60 when you've been standing around doing nothing for an hour. So the bills take over. Uh, they get really good field position because there's a really good return by Al Edwards. So the bills take over with about five and a half left in the, in the third at the 40 and they start moving. They're across the 50 pretty quickly. Thurman Thomas seems like he's really getting it going. And, the Giants get a huge, not a break, but the Bills get a huge setback where there's on the second and eight, there's a pass an offensive pass interference call on McKellar, which makes it second and 18. It ends up being third and 18, and Kelly sacked by Marshall. So they're already, they're way back at the 38. They have to punt. It's not a good punt at all. It's like 20 yards. So the Giants now get the ball at their own 42 with 342 left in the third, up 17-12. And I have a note here that basically just says how much momentum the Bills had up 12-3 after the safety. 
that's how much momentum the Giants had here. Yeah, they were only up five instead of nine, but they had all the momentum. They'd scored two straight touchdowns. They had the ball in great field position late in the third quarter, and this was their chance to go for the kill. A good drive here for a touchdown makes it 24-12, to and the game's probably over. Maybe not with how quickly the Bills score. I, it, It's not over with how quickly the Bills score, but, I mean, it's, you know, they had a real chance to go for the kill here, and instead they get uh, a couple of straight first downs. Hostetler hits Howard Cross, and then there's a penalty, and they're at the Buffalo 43, and the drive kind of stalls. They also have a fourth and two at the Buffalo 35, Kind of shows you how different the game is these this day these uh, these days. That's a fifty three yard field goal attempt. You know you don't really hear. They're obviously not going to go for it. It's not even discussed. They run it up the middle, which is probably the right call. But OJ is stuffed, so the Bills turn back the giant threat. End up with the ball in good field position with just under two minutes left in the third quarter. So the Bills start at the thirty five. They run just a couple of plays, but their completions, they're already out to the 50 when we go to the uh, end of the third quarter. Bills are driving. It's 17-12 Giants. The Giants really owned the third quarter, but they're still only up five, and the Bills are in, in good position here starting the fourth quarter. And then right as the fourth quarter starts, the first play of the, first qu- of the fourth quarter is a... 31-yard run. Okay, so, I'm sorry. The Bills were at the 31 to start the quarter. And on the first play from script, or first play of the fourth quarter, Thurman Thomas, 31-yard touchdown. First play, he breaks a tackle at the 20-yard line and then runs into the end zone untouched from there. So eight seconds into the fourth quarter, the Bills have the lead back at 19 to 17. And this is when you realize just how good a game Thomas is having. He ends up with 15 runs, 15 rushes for 135 yards. So that's exactly nine yards a carry. Adds in another 55 yards in receiving. So everybody always says that if the Bills had won, Thomas would have been the MVP. Kelly has an okay game. You, you talked about how Reed doesn't have a great game. This is probably the best game of Thurman Thomas's career when you factor in the magnitude of the game. And I think just in rewatching this, when I see him go on that run, you realize, wow, he is probably the best player on the field in this game. Bills first and 10 at the New York 31 yard line. Kelly from the shotgun, flanked by Thomas. Gives to Thomas. And Thurman breaking tackles at the 22, inside the 10, touchdown Buffalo. Al, you mentioned earlier in the day the name of Thurman Thomas. He got good blocking at the line, broke a tackle, and then got one from Andre Reid downfield. Jim Richer with one at the line of scrimmage. But then Andre Reid made one happen downfield. He knocks down Everson Walls, and and Giants continue to go with that two-down line, too. And the Bills have been pecking, pecking, pecking. Finally, they get a runner through the linebackers, and a great effort by Thurman Thomas. And the um, you've, O.J. Anderson has said that 
when Norwood was lining up to kick somebody from whether it was the NFL or ABC or something told him might've even been somebody from Disney world. Actually. I think it was Disney world. Somebody told him if he misses this, you're the MVP. And that somebody on the other sideline was telling Thurman Thomas, if he makes this, you're the MVP because they needed to film the Disneyland commercial, Disney world, whatever. And Thomas would go on to have some not great Super Bowls. He got progressively worse from a statistical output standpoint in every Super Bowl the Bills played in. I think he did okay against Washington the following year, but that was the year he lost his helmet and missed the first couple of plays. And then I think at least the first Super Bowl against Dallas, he was terrible and then not much better in the second one. So this game for Thomas, much like the Bills, much like just how good the Bills were this year, gets obscured a little bit by what comes after in the next three years. So now the Giants take over down 19 to 17. And this is a drive that almost gets forgotten, which is kind of weird. It doesn't get talked about. It's another seven-minute long drive. They take over at their own 23. On third and seven, Hostetler hits. This this is a big drive for Mark Bavaro. Uh, Hostetler hits Bavaro for 17 yards on third and seven. And then they start. They try to keep it on the ground. They hit Bavaro a couple of more times. Ingram gets involved. And ultimately, they convert a third and five with Meggett. So they're inside the 10. It sets up, actually, they have first and goal at the three. So it looks like they're they're going in. OJ loses four yards. They end up with third and goal at the three. And Hostetler throws an incompletion. So with eight minutes left exactly, Matt Barr hits a 21-yard field goal to give the Giants a 20-19 to lead. So after Buffalo takes the lead, the Giants with another slow, methodical, time-killing drive that ultimately stalls inside the 10-yard line but does result in points and gives them the lead. This is sort of the nice send-off for Bavaro. He has five receptions in this game. He has only one going into the fourth quarter, but he has three on this drive. And then he adds another one in the next drive, the last drive of the game for the Giants. This was his last game ever as a Giant Bavaro was definitely much more of a factor on the 86 team. He was an all pro that year, thousand yards receiving, scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl, all that type of thing. By 90, his knees were shot. He was not practicing. He was basically just going out there on game day. He was very much a shell of his former self, as is evidenced by the fact that the Giants would cut him shortly after this game. But I think they, and they cut him. I believe the reason given was the doctor's said he, there was no way he was going to play at all in 1991, and he didn't. He then I think he had a year with Cleveland and then two years with Philadelphia after that. And you know, it never occurred to me until years later why it was that he ended up with Cleveland in 92. <laughs> Belichick you know, loved him. As a kid, I remember him being on Philadelphia, and then I remember him as like a giant, like the giant figure of him, this action figure, and him in video games, and seeing him in the highlight films and stuff, and be like, why did the Giants let him go? Not realizing as a kid that like he was shot. He was I, totally shot. I give him credit for playing those three more years in Cleveland and Philadelphia. Yeah, but I mean, he was shot. So, um, so the Giants score. I, I've one thing I forgot to talk about on this drive, which was on a uh, a second. Where am I? Okay, yeah. Enough. Hostetler hit Mark Ingram for a 13-yard pass down to the 14-yard line. And as Ingram is getting tackled, 
he raises the ball like he's gonna lateral it to Mark or to Maurice Carthon. Yeah, I saw. I I I, I remember that too from watching this weekend, and he's one of the announcers says out. basically Parcells was about to have a heart attack. Which I mean, well, when you think about it, a it's a bad idea in general. B Maurice Carthon had dropped the wide open touchdown the week before in San Francisco. Like, thank God he didn't do that. Let's well, just. And the other thing too is that you're all you need is a field goal, and you're very clearly in field goal range at the 14 yard line. Which I mean, give him credit; he didn't do it. You know, he thought about it and then didn't do it. But yeah, that was one of those where by the time you had to, by the time you were able to process what he almost did, he already hadn't done it. You know what I mean? So you couldn't have the full heart attack. But my God, uh-huh. and that would be known if he had fumbled that away. That would be known in Super Bowl history and Super Bowl lore to this day. Even if the Giants won the game. That still would have been something that got talked about. Because the other thing, too, is Maurice Carthon wasn't fast. If he lateraled it to Maurice Carthon, he would have gotten two more yards. <laughs> like, like, what was the point of that? So, anyway, so the Giants uh, take the lead. They kick it off to the Bills with seven and a half minutes left. The Bills, and this is another one where I forgot. I thought this was the last drive, and it's not. No, they go back and forth with punts in the over the course of the next five minutes. Bills start out. And they end up with a first and they hit Thurman Thomas on a nice play on second down where he makes a nice catch on the sidelines. Um, and then Kelly's it's not a sack because he technically gained a yard, but he's tackled by Pepper Johnson ends up being third and eighth. Jim Kelly throws an incompletion to Al Edwards. And with just under six minutes left to go, the bills have to punt it to the giants. So the giants on oh, Perry Williams hit Al Edwards. It would have been a first down on that play right there. But as again, as soon as Al Edwards touches it, Perry Williams drills him. He drops it. So it wasn't a first down. So they end up, instead of first and 10, it was fourth and eighth. And they ended up having to punt. So the Giants get the ball. One, one quick thing here Pardon. that I'm just noticing, and this is just crazy. Every single play in this drive for the Bills, this, this short drive, is 17 seconds apart. Seven eleven, six fifty four, six thirty seven, six twenty, six oh three, five forty six. They're moving so so quickly here. Now there's an incomplete pass or two in there, but that's nonetheless they're just moving so quickly. Then when the Giants get back, they're at like thirty seven seconds, thirty four seconds. This one is forty two seconds. They're taking so much. Now they have the lead, so that's probably a big part of it, but they're taking so much more time between snaps than Buffalo is. So the Giants get it. Um, They start at their own 30. Uh, Steve Tasker saved Dave Meggett from having a huge punt return, which, you know, obviously would have, at the very least, took more time off the clock and started, you know, and added field position. You know, the Giants, it's obvious what they're going to try to do. They're not going to... They're going to throw the ball if they absolutely have to, but they're going to really try not to. Starts out pretty well. Meggett gets, or Anderson gets a couple of uh, nice carries to get them a first down. Meggett gets stuffed, so Hostetler throws it complete to Bavaro for seven yards, which brings up a third and three with 241 left. So the Bills are starting to use their timeouts. The Giants probably are a first down away from winning the game. If not, they're definitely no more than two first downs away from winning the game. On third and three, they run a uh, QB draw. Hostetler has a hole, but it closes immediately, so he's tackled short. He only gets one yard. It brings up fourth and two at the Buffalo 48. No doubt there. You have to punt. So 
The Bills use their second timeout with 2.22 to go before the Giants punt. So the Bills are going to get the ball back with one timeout and the two-minute warning. Landetta punts it 38 yards to the Buffalo. Buffalo takes it over at the 10. Another great punt by Landetta. He had a very good game here. He's very famous for how good a game he had in the 86 NFC Championship game against Washington and the swirling winds of the Meadowlands when the Washington punter couldn't do anything and that was a big difference in the game but here he has an underrated really good game and this is sort of the famous quote where it's at where the guy says uh hearts beat faster in buffalo if you're a bills fan you say let's go or whatever if you're a giants fan you say hey you gotta hold them so there's a couple quick special teams notes here you mentioned on the return by megan and the tackle by steve tasker I think that Steve Tasker should be in the Hall of Fame. He was a receiver with the Bills, but his he was sort of like their number four or five receiver, but he was a great special teams player. He was great at covering punts. Never really a returner, although he returned kicks every once in a while, but he was just great at whether it was playing on the punt team, playing on the punt return team, you know, kickoff, all that type of stuff. He's been named a finalist a few times for the hall of fame. I really do think that Steve Tasker belongs in the hall of fame. I just remember him and I just want to pull up his, his background here. He was in the pro bowl, I think every year for something like seven or eight years. Just bear with me here. I just want to pull up one guy who gets in the pro bowl is like a non kicker special teams player. And I think that Tasker was sort of the, the genesis of that. He was a seven-time Pro Bowler with the Buffalo Bills. My guess is there aren't a lot of seven-time Pro Bowlers who aren't in the Hall of Fame. It's funny. He actually, the years that they went to the Super Bowl, so 90 to 93, he had two receptions every single year. And then they must have been sort of depleted by injuries or something because later on, the last couple of years, he actually catches a lot more passes, 35 one year, uh, I'm sorry, 21 year, 21 the next. So I think Tasker belongs in the Hall of Fame. And then Landetta for the Giants, he's a constant. He's on both the 86 and the 90 team. And then he's their punter for a couple more years. He actually gets cut by Dan Reeves uh, prior to the 93 season and hangs around for a while. Do you remember in like 2006 where they had to sign him for one game? He wasn't even active. So what happens was LaShawn Landetta played a very long time in the NFL. And I remember he was on the Rams for a while. He was everywhere. He coming back. But there was a game in 06 where the Giants, whose punter at the time was Jeff Fiegels, who was nearly as old as Sean Landetta, had gotten hit the week before, and they weren't sure if he was going to be able to play. So they signed Sean Landetta during the week in case Fiegels wasn't going to be able to play. And then Fiegels was able to play. And I think that the following Monday, they cut Landetta. So he wasn't active because they weren't going to carry two punters. But he was on the roster for a week when the Giants played the Cowboys in 2006. Yes. And he actually had just left football the year before. I had thought that maybe he had something like, you know, he had, he had been out for four or five years. But no. no. Yeah, after the Giants, he goes to the Rams, St. Louis, Tampa, the Packers, Philly. Philly for a bunch of years, actually. He was... He was the punter on a lot of those. I had forgotten this, but he was the punter on those McNabb Eagle teams that were going to the AFC or to the NFC Championship every year in the early 2000s. So, a really long career. He's a three-time All-Pro, two-time Super Bowl champion. He made the All-80s and the All-90s team for 
the uh, the NFL. So a really solid punter. Giants were really good at having guys that were really good at positions that weren't the skill positions. They had a really good year as the kicker year too. Matt Barr, who kicked the go-ahead field goal and who kicked five field goals, including the game winner in San Francisco the week before, he had been the kicker for the Steelers in the late seventies. And I don't know. He's, he has to be the only player. And I haven't verified this who appeared in super bowls in two decades with a full other decade in between or consecutive. Yeah, exactly. So he's, he's in there in 79. He's in there in 90. And I don't think any of the teams he played on made it in the 80s, the Giants kicker for most of the 80s had been Raul Allegre. And then he actually, this is another thing that I think some Giant fans don't realize. They actually started the 90 season with Raul Allegre. And then Allegre got hurt a few games into the season. And it was only then that they brought Matt Barr in. Said he, Barr held a record for longest span for a player between Super Bowl victories at 11 years until Ray Lewis of the Baltimore Ravens went 12 years from mm. 13. Now there's no decade skip there, but, uh, Yep. So they go to commercial, obviously. They come back from commercial and they come back to the from commercial with a shot of Scott Norwood on the Bills sideline. And the quote from Al Michaels is he doesn't have a lot of range and especially not on grass. We all know the deal. The Bills are taking over down 20 to 19. So only needing a field goal, just over two minutes left, no time or one timeout. And they're also going to have the two-minute warning, but that's going to be pretty quick. That's basically going to be one play or two plays into the half. Now, this seems to – or into the drive. This seems to fit really well with the Bills because they are a hurry-up offense to begin with. First play, Jim Kelly is almost sacked, and he's able to run up the middle and get about eight yards. So not only not get sacked, but turn it into a good gain. That brings it to the two-minute warning. And then on second down, they're stuffed. Kelly only gets one yard, so it brings up a third and one. And again, the clock is moving. And on third and one, Thurman Thomas ends up with a 22-yard gain, which brings them into, not into giant territory, but into, you know, close to, they're at the 41 and you're thinking, all right, they need, what, 30 more yards to at least to even think about a field goal, but certainly doable with this offense. On the next play, uh, they have first and 10, and Kelly gets it to Andre Reed, and again, Andre Reed is tackled immediately. The second he catches the ball, which has been a theme throughout the game, on the next play, on second and six, Kelly drops back. He has forever to throw the ball. He ends up having to run. He gets nine yards, so he turns it into a good run. But you got to remember the situation here, which is that it's running out of time. They only have one timeout left. They still need about 30 yards. And a play where a guy has forever also is going to take forever off the clock. Play ended up taking over, you know, almost 15 seconds off the clock just on its own. After he uh, runs it, they have to take the time out with 48 seconds left. And on the subject of the clock, 
it's right around now when it, the announcers mentioned that the Giants and Leonard Marshall, I think in particular, was the one who gets caught. The Giants have been kicking the ball to sort of try and slow the Bills offense down, and they've been doing it for most of the game. I don't know if they ever actually get flagged for it, but they definitely get warned for it, and they notice it on the broadcast. In retrospect, given some of the things that Belichick has been accused of through the years, I think it's kind of funny to look back and see that he had sort of already, even as a defensive coordinator, gotten into some of those trick type of things. Certainly wouldn't be at the highest of the most nefarious things he's ever done. Um, So they call that last time out. So it's first and 10 at the giant 46 with 48 seconds left. Uh, Kelly hits McKellar for six yards. He's tackled inbounds by Renee Thompson. So, oh, and I wanted to mention at the, with 48 seconds, when Kelly goes over to the sideline uh, after that timeout, you can see how heavily he's breathing. You can see his chest. Now, I mean, I know he just ran the ball, but sort of the culmination of running that offense and the gate, how long the game had been going on and the physicality. And he's run the ball three times in this drive. Yeah. you And that last, he wasn't trying to run the ball that last drive. He had no choice. So you can see that he's blown up. McKellar is caught inbounds with 30 seconds left. So they end up having to run to the line. They run it to Thurman Thomas. So they get up to the line. They snap it with 29 seconds left. Thurman Thomas gets has an 11-yard run. He's tackled by Mark Collins. And here's where we can get into this because the Bills run up to the line. They spike the ball with eight seconds left. It's first and 10 at the 29. They have to run up to the line. They spike it with eight seconds left, and out comes Scott Norwood. And what I have written really big here, run another play. You have seven seconds to run a play. All you have to do is not get caught in bounds. And knowing that the alternative is a 46-yard field goal on grass, which you know is a problem for your kicker, to not at least try to run another play is criminal to me. First of all, I just want to go back to the previous play real quick. It shows you how important Thomas was to them in that game that they handed the ball off in that situation with no timeouts. Mm. They, they were willing to take that chance because they knew what a sure thing Thomas was in that game. I wonder if the, you know, run another play thing, I wonder if that, I'd be curious to know whether that was said at the time because I almost feel like some of that strategy is stuff that's come along in the ensuing decades, this kind of, hey, run a quick sideline pattern and see what happens. I I get what you're saying, but I, I'd be curious to know how much of that line of thinking was out there at the time. You might be right. So out comes Scott Norwood, the Giants ice him. I believe the quote then was they'll give him time to think about it. One other thing I want to mention here, um, and I don't know if you were going to mention this, Lawrence Taylor, not on the field goal block team, runs out there anyway, tells one kind of like calls another one of his teammates off, pushes him to the sideline because he wants to be out there for the last play. I didn't know that, but hard to argue with that, that he should be, you know, you're not going to run another defensive play in this game. There's really no reason for him not to be out there. So we all know what happens. And again, I talked about this with the Ingram play. As a kid, I'd only ever seen this from the low 
behind the goalpost angle in super slow motion. And it's a close kick. But that angle, and it's always the audio of the new, the Giants radio audio, where it's snap, spot, kick. It's in the air. It's got the distance. It is no good. Giants win. Giants win. So I, you know, until a few years ago, I'd never seen the hard camera angle of it. And they do show it from behind the goalposts, but it's a higher angle. It's pretty clear fairly quickly that it's not going in. And if you see the clip of it shot from behind him, yeah, it's clear right away that it's going off. Basically, he pushes it right. It never. It's not one where it hooks and hooks too far or doesn't hook enough. He basically just pushes it straight to the right. It's close, but it's never... It's like when a guy hits a foul ball that, you know, doesn't land too far from the foul pole, but was never going fair. Mm-hmm. That's what they. That's what happened. That the sort of famous views. You had the, a bunch of Giants players in a circle, uh, on a knee, kind of praying. A lot of the Bills were on the sideline, holding hands, kneeling down. New York. Now Norwood tries to kick his longest ever on grass, forty-seven yards. Eight seconds left. After he misses, they cut right to a shot of Norwood. Obviously, you know, really disconsolate, and the players are trying to go over and and console him, and and people start pouring out onto the field and and going crazy. And the announcers and Mike Michaels is saying, "There's still four seconds left. They'll need to get this cleaned up, and they'll need to whatever." So it takes a little while, and all while they're doing that, they're showing the guys on the sidelines. They're showing Jim Kelly. Eventually, they show a replay of, of Hostetler reacting to the play. He was on a knee kind of by himself and doesn't really react either way. I'm sure that was – he probably would have reacted the same way if he'd missed, you know, just kind of puts his head down and, and reacts to himself. They finally get everything straightened out. The Giants are able to, to get out onto the field and take a quick knee, and that's it. The celebration, you know, they pile onto the field, and the Giants win the game 20-19. to 19. Yeah, to to that time, but at that point, it probably was the best Super Bowl in history. Super Bowl three was more historic, but as far as just a really good f- football game and a well played game, maybe no turnovers in the game. No turnovers in the game. Not too many penalties, a few, but not not an overbearing amount. Because it really hadn't been that many close Super Bowls, and even the ones it had been. I mean, that, that, that Colt-Cowboy game, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I think the Colts turned the ball over nine times and still won the Super Bowl. This, with the combination of the players, the legends that were in the game, how good back and forth it was, not to mention sort of the atmosphere and the unique atmosphere at some point in the 2000s, Super Bowls started being good almost every year. And, and you know who we can thank for that is the Patriots, as painful yeah. as 
the Patriots, every Super Bowl the Patriots played in that era, except for the last one against the Rams, the games they won and the games they lost were all phenomenal games to watch. The first one I really remember being good was Green Bay-Denver. Well, and up to this point, what you were saying, up to 90, there were far fewer close games than there were comically unclose games. Like It's, it's not, almost even like a running joke. You it, know, was. In, it was a running joke that back then where people would laugh about how the Super Bowl, not only was the Super Bowl never close, it was always a blowout. You know, think about in 1990, you look back, just the recent couple of years, the 49ers had destroyed Denver. You had the close 49er bangle game. The Redskins had destroyed Denver. The Giants had destroyed Denver. Perhaps you're noticing a theme here. The fact that the Giant-Denver game was close at halftime was almost remarkable. The Bears killed New England. You had so many games that were, like I said, a 17-point game was considered. Eh, it wasn't a bad game. Like, you know, my father used to talk about that era when he would he, he would kind of go to the same guy's house for the Super Bowl every year and play some cards and stuff. And he said, like, yeah, usually by the third quarter of those years in the 80s, the game was over. So the fact that we went, we got to a point where not only were they, I remember thinking that Packer Patriot game was like a really good game just because it was like a two touchdown game. Just because it wasn't over in the first quarter. Like, yeah. And then you had the Denver Green Bay game. And then a couple years after that, you had the, Titans and um, Titans and the Rams. And that, that was one of the last um, that was like the first one where it was like down to the last play. Incidentally, before we recorded this, Andrew and I were guests on our colleague, Jeremy McFarlane on his football, his family podcast on the sports history network, talking about the New York giants and our love and fandom thereof. I'm not sure exactly when that's going to, drop but definitely check out jeremy's football is family podcast with andrew and i talking about the new york giants so i had a bunch of sort of aftermath things that i wanted to to get into maybe just tick off a few of them one by one if that was all right with you go ahead so the giants go back they are not honored in either new york or new jersey Mayor Dinkins in New York had previously said that there might be time or there might be room for a celebration in New York, but then it turns out there's not enough money in the budget. So the Giants get no celebration for winning the Super Bowl. I think the war wasn't the war also part of it. Or maybe that was an excuse they used, but it's I, possible. So nothing in 86 when Ed Koch said, let East Rutherford have the parade. He said, let them march by the oil drums in Munaki. Okay, great. Well, <laughs> Yeah, because they probably should have said yes to that. They probably would have. I don't know. Anyway, we don't need to let Ed Koch was a big Met fan, but Ed Koch was also a guy. If you read about him, he was one of those. Have you ever seen the old classic cartoon from like the I think it's like the 70s of like a New Yorker's view of the world? And it's like the whole thing is New York City and then it's like Jersey and then L.A. And um. Ed Koch was definitely one of those. In fact, to the point where when he was in Congress, he was one of these who would, even though he lived, you know, not that far away in New York, he would not spend a minute more outside of New York City than he had to. Never took a vacation. Just was a guy who just loved New York City. The fact that the Giants had left New York City was like considered a personal affront to Ed Koch. And so when the Mets won in October, he 
rained praise on big parade and everything on the Mets. And then three months later, the Giants win. And he he pointedly wanted to make a point by not having anything for the Giants in 86. In 90, I think it was a little bit more of a combination of a few different things. The Bills are greeted by 30,000 fans in Buffalo as the losing team. They have this big rally. I don't know how long these would continue. They had another one the following year when they lost to Washington. My guess is that by the time they lost to Dallas in 92, it was like, all right, we're not going to have big rallies for losing teams anymore. But um, Norwood is like cheered to the, to the hilt. And he speaks at both the 90 and the 91 rallies. I think, and we record this in um, in January of 2020, or 2021, I should say. should say 2021, but we'll... <laughs> I've really been impressed, not only in reading about this, but then also in what's going on in the present day. I've really been impressed with the, um, just with the, the character of Bill's fans. You disagree. I'm starting to come around slightly. I'm not rooting for them this week. By the time this airs, we'll be getting ready for the Chiefs and the Super Bowl. I'm starting to think some of it might have been a little bit media coverage, but I just I'm tired of hearing about Bills fans jumping through tables. <laughs> and it, like, it's a passionate fan base. Like every fan base isn't passionate. I do like what they've done with the charities, what they did with Lamar Jackson's charity, what they did with Andy Dalton's charity a few years ago. That's great. That's legitimately great. And I think that that's sort of the same type of thing that leads them to cheer a guy like Scott Norwood, where, you know, think about what happened with Bill Buckner in Boston or with other guys who've been goats in one way or another. I think it really now the bills do cut Norwood after two years of, of losing, they, they go to a different kicker, but it's just sort of interesting. That contrast, the, the giants as the winning team get almost nothing. The bills as the losing team get rallies with tens of thousands of people. And the Bills as a losing team are back in the Super Bowl three straight years, and the Giants are immediately fall off a cliff for a couple of years. So from a Bills point of view, they become a joke eventually. The fact that they lose so many in a row becomes a joke. There's even, you know, they do commercials. Was it a Snickers commercial, I think, with Levy and Kelly and Thomas and some of them talking about, you know, we're not leaving this room until we figure out how we finally win a Super Bowl. Guys, I've said this four years in a row, but this year, we're not only going back to the big one, we're going to win it. No one is leaving this room until we figure out how. No one. Not going anywhere for a while? Grab a Snickers, because nothing will hold you over like peanuts, caramel, and milk chocolate. Better give me one, too. Hungry? Why wait? It's hard to remember. I think people may remember it now, but at the time, it was hard to remember. Hey, this team was really, really good in 1990 and came really, really close to winning a Super Bowl. Yeah, in 90, they were definitely the second-best team in football, and they were the second-best team in football to the San Francisco 49ers. Maybe they were the best team. 
91 was a weird year in the NFC. The Niners didn't make the playoffs. The Giants the defending Super Bowl champions didn't make the playoffs. So you could argue that Dallas was a year away. Maybe they were the second best team in football in 91. By the time he got to 92 and 93, the, I remember seeing like the, especially in 93, seeing the Cowboys 49ers game build as the real Super Bowl. You know, I think it was, okay, they lost in 90, and then they lost in 91, and then they got humiliated in 92, and by then it became a full-on, you know, the novelty was gone, people were tired of it. When they played the Cowboys again the next year, it was the exact same two teams for the first time ever. And that's still the only time that's been that way, isn't it? Yeah. But I think, yeah, it was, by then... And God, even by 93, you might be able to argue that the 93 Packers were better. By then, they were clearly not the second best team in the league. It it, it gradually became less and less. People gradually got more and more tired of it, which is understandable. Well, the other thing in 93 was that that was the year that Joe Montana had gotten traded to Kansas City. And Buffalo played the Chiefs in the AFC title game and the Niners played the Cowboys in the NFC title game. And you talk about the dream Super Bowl of all Super Bowls. A Montana versus Young Super Bowl would have just been the greatest story in football history at that point. And so when that not only didn't happen, but then when you ended up with Dallas and Buffalo for the second straight year and Buffalo in there for the fourth straight year, it became just an annoyance to a lot of football fans. Yeah. And it was, and again, they lost, you know? Yeah, exactly. And again, it wasn't an interesting game. So, and then I guess we could kind of close here with the giants because first of all, I think in a lot of ways it's analogous to, the Packers the year after Lombardi left where not only did they lose the coach, but they, everybody gets old. Taylor's getting old. uh, Sims is getting old. uh, You know, Leonard Marshall and Carl Banks and all these guys way past their prime. You alluded to it. Parcells doesn't actually announce he's leaving until sometime in like, April or May, he drafts for the team they have in minicamp too. They they have he's there for rookie minicamp, and then he had had some health issues. I believe you know during the season in '90, he had to be hospitalized. I think he had kidney stones at one point, and then he had to have a I think an angioplasty in the off season. But he had come back after that, and you know done the draft and done camp, and then sometime I think it was in May, decided that he was not you know, up to it or you'll have to say with Parcells, everything is always part of a power play. So who knows, you know, but he decided to leave the giants ended up with Ray Hanley. There's been a bit of revisionist history about, Oh, Parcells. If he hadn't left, they would have gotten bill Belichick. Belichick had basically already agreed to the Cleveland deal. Um, by the time the super bowl was played, the Giants, specifically George Young, the GM, was never going to give the job to Bill Belichick. That was not going to happen. Could they have ended up with somebody better than Ray Handley? Yeah, but who also could have foretold that would be that big of a disaster? So in his 
book, his autobiography, which Bill Parcells, along with Joe Torre and Terry Francona have, and a couple of others have done the best kind of sports autobiography that can exist, which is that they cooperate with the author, but then the book is written in the third person. So it's not just some ghostwriter putting a bunch of things in the guy's voice, which maybe that's just a little bit of a digression on my part. But anyway, you're right, though. Yeah, there's nothing worse than reading a book by a guy. And, you know, like the the biggest example I ever heard was David Wells. And it's like David Wells hasn't read a book, let alone written a book. Anyway, Parcells says in the book that he had said to George Young, should we try and do something to keep either Belichick or Coughlin around? And he mentions those two names specifically. Now, this book was written in like, I don't know, 2013. I think that Belichick and especially Coughlin in hindsight look a lot better than they probably did in 1990. So Belichick looked good at the time. He was the defensive coordinator. He'd been there for a long time. Belichick, it's actually kind of surprising he didn't get picked up earlier, but I guess it was a different era. Uh, Belichick made sense at the time. That Coughlin thing is revisionist. I mean, he was... He'd been a he was a receivers coach on a team that wasn't exactly famous for their receivers. I, I don't know. To me, the idea that he would have come into a veteran team and started doing what he did in Jacksonville five years later, like that would have gone over real well. He would have come in and started telling Lawrence Taylor how high his socks needed to be. <laughs> he might have done a better job than Ray Hanley, but it's like I say with Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick went to Cleveland and got some seasoning and then went back and became an assistant and all that. They would not have gotten the Tom Coughlin they got in 2004. Who, by the way, the Tom Coughlin they got in 2004 needed to change before they could win. You know what I mean? Yeah, so no, I agree. The no, I, just, thing I think is revisionist. I just thought it was interesting. And if you talk about the power play, I think there had always been sort of a conflict between Parcells and Young. Each sort of didn't want to give the other the credit that he was due. But Parcells always insists that, that Young was – had it that young had his heart set on Handley. Interestingly enough, I think by the time the Super Bowl rolls around, Coughlin had already taken the Boston College job. And actually, after the Super Bowl win in the locker room, he's calling some of his Boston College recruits to sort of, I don't know, put it over the goal line to get them to go to BC because their incoming head coach had just won a Super Bowl with the Giants. So the Giants end up with Hanley. He's ill-equipped to head coach in the NFL. He creates probably a quarterback controversy between Sims and Hostetler that lasts for the next two years. Now, both end up getting hurt at various times during those two years, so it's not entirely Hanley's doing. But all of a sudden the Giants go from being a top team under Parcells. And like you said, with almost some of the same personnel, with with a lot of the same personnel, to being a joke and an over-the-hill team in 91 and 92 under Hanley. Then they hire Dan Reeves. Reeves comes in, he keeps some of the guys, but he also gets rid of, he cuts Pepper Johnson, he cuts Otis Anderson, Banks is gone by this point. Leonard Marshall's gone by this point. Um, 
And so he's sort of starting to clear out some. I think I think Baker and Ingram both leave after the 92 season. So then they have that one sort of shining year under Reeves where they're pretty good. And then after that, it's sort of the, the dark years for the rest of the 90s. And I think the one last thing we should talk about with Ray Hanley is that he dropped off the face of the earth. After 92, he gets fired. I mean, he'd been an assistant for seven years with the Giants. He gets fired after the 92 season. He goes back to Arizona, where he's from. And no one has ever seen him again. It's like he's in the witness protection program. Like, I I mean, the guy just like was not a great coach for two years. And the fact that he's like, for forget about like that he doesn't come back for reunions for the teams he was a member of an assistant coach for in 86 and 90 nothing like nothing he's still alive but he's just dropped off the face of the earth like to the point where people think there were scandals like there's rumors that we don't need to get into here but i think it's just because there's nothing else like part of me every now and then thinks of like an alternate reality where he took them over and won a couple of championships. And he's like this guy who's basically been in seclusion for 30 years is like a big shot in New York still. Cause they had a couple of good years with him. Like there was a story. I think it's about 10 years old now where some reporter or Super something Bowl, it was right before Super Bowl 42. I just looked it up, tracked him down and called him at his house, and Hanley basically just said to him, do not call me, and hung up, and that I, was the end of it. I guess the reporter said, like, I'm doing a where are they now feature like before the game, and he said, no, I'm not the least bit, be, least bit interested, thank you, and hung up. That's literally the only statement that anyone has from him since 1992. Which, I mean, the guy's entitled to his privacy. I'm, I'm not saying he's not, but like he didn't have to resign because of some crazy thing. He just didn't do a very good job. Like Ben McAdoo didn't go into hiding. Pat Shermer didn't go into hiding. Like, and truthfully, he, he only went 14 and 18. Like it's not, I mean, he had more talent than that, but like, I feel like the guys like got like a, like how those guys in the middle East have to go in hiding. Cause they have a fatwa against them. Like nobody's trying to kill Ray Handley. Like, there must be something more there. There just must be. I don't, again, I've, I think I've seen some of the same rumors that you've seen and, and who knows? I mean, but there's gotta be something, whether it's something in his personal life or just something specific that happened because yeah, I mean, the guy was a very successful NFL coach and an assistant coach. Yeah. It's a very weird kind of thing. I, I can't think of another example in, in sports. It's almost like a JD Salinger type of thing, but yeah, he's Ray Hanley. Let's just say he gave two interviews around Super Bowl 42 he probably would have just as much privacy the last 13 years as he did anyway. It's not like, are people going to come, you know, continually beat down Ray Hanley's door? Yeah, exactly. That's, I don't know. So anyway, 1990, 30 years ago, Super Bowl 25, 30 years ago, I think, what was the exact date? Cause I think we might be almost like January 27th is what I have here. I got to go back eight pages of notes. 
I really went overkill with the notes. But yes, January 27th, 1991. So this will air on the 27th or the 28th. So by the time you all are listening to this, this will be right about that time, uh, you know, right about the 30-year anniversary. And a lot of different, a lot of different threads and storylines in the history of the NFL, whether it's Parcells, whether it's Lawrence Taylor, whether it's the Bills that lost four years in a row, you got the the whole Gulf War angle. There's a lot of stories in that one Super Bowl in addition to just a great game in and of itself. So thank you all for joining us. Andrew, did you have anything else to add before we shut it down? No, I think we about covered it. Yeah, no, yeah, as is as is the case. So check us out um, on Jeremy McFarland's podcast, the Football is Family podcast. I was glad to repay him coming on our In Memoriam special and – we will see you next week for a little bit of Super Bowl trivia. Until then, I am Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.